Well, today is uh, part two in uh, a short series that we're going to be looking at in the Elim Church over the next few weeks on the subject of where is God when life hurts. And as I said last week, that um, this constitutes, I believe, the single greatest challenge of the Christian faith, making sense of suffering in a world which has been created by God, whom the Bible declares as all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. And also, as we discovered last week, there have been literally thousands of books written on this subject over thousands of years. And there's a whole subsection of theology um, given over to this one question of why is there evil, why is there suffering in the world, a world created by a good, all-powerful God. And that subject is called theodicy in attempting to answer that particular question. Last week I said that uh, I'm going to be covering this subject over a few weeks. And what we're going to be doing is attempting to build up the big picture. <clears throat> I know that some of you do jigsaws, and the more jigsaw pieces you will know, the greater and the clearer the picture becomes. And what we're trying to do over the next few weeks is just have um, build up the picture, see if we can get some kind of answer to this dilemma. Um, and as I confessed last week, we don't have all the jigsaw pieces. We don't have them all. But there is a day coming that we often sing about, that we often read about in the scriptures, a day coming when we shall know as we are known. In fact, um, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah these words. I should turn it on, shouldn't I? There we go, Isaiah 59, 55 verse 9. I quoted these last week. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And we do live in a, a time of mystery at this time. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he writes these words. Now we see things imperfectly, but then, that is when Christ returns, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. Now, I just find those words absolutely enthralling, amazing. Because the last quote is from the Apostle Paul, and he has 13 books attributed to him in the New Testament. So here is a guy with this immense knowledge, the Apostle Paul, uh, whose books are included in the New Testament, and yet he himself says that his knowledge is only partial and incomplete. We don't have all the jigsaw pieces, but we have enough jigsaw pieces, I believe, to provide us with some of the answers to this age-old dilemma of where is God when life hurts. Last week we looked at the jigsaw piece of human freedom, free will. And we said that most of the suffering caused in this world is due to um, human beings who have made the wrong choices. Suffering can be caused by our sins of commission, by the, the things that we do and the things that we say which are wrong, which causes suffering to come on other people, or the sins of omission, the things that we should do, the good things that we fail to do, which then causes suffering. We also discovered last week that free will is a gift that God has given all people. It's a gift that we've all abused. Uh, we said that God had a choice. He could have made us robots, predetermined, preconditioned to 
love him and preconditioned to do everything which was good, but he chose not to do that. He gave us free will. And the other side of free will is that we might not choose to do all that is good. We might not choose to love the Lord at all. We might choose to turn our backs on him. We might choose to do that which is evil, that we might murder, we might tell lies, we might slander, we might do a whole host of other things. But you see, when God gives us freedom of choice, he does so in a hands-off way. God could have created a world without human freedom. That was possible. And yes, it would have been a world without hate. And yes, it would have been a world without suffering. It would have been a world without gossip and murder. A world also, it would have been without love. Real love, love for God and for others, must always involve choice. For those who went around last week, that's just a very, very quick snippet of where we went to, I suppose. But following last week's uh, talk, uh, I met and had a conversation with one of our congregation uh, members in the foyer following the service, someone who has suffered considerably. And I asked her if she would allow me to interview her this morning. Uh, Many of you know Jenny Atkins' story of how she came to faith and how she became a, a paraplegic through a terrible accident some years ago. And you see, I can talk about suffering till the cows come home. I really can. But I don't believe that my words will be as powerful or as memorable as what Jenny is going to share with us today. So Jenny, would you like to come forward now and uh, allow me just to ask you some questions? First of all, Jenny, thank you. Thank you so much for being willing to uh, be interrogated quite in this way. That's okay. Okay, yeah. you'll need to speak a little bit into the, in, into the mic because... I'm not used to one of these. Okay. Can, can those in the back room there in the annex here, if you can hear, give us a wave. Right, okay. Right, that's good. That's, uh, that's important to know. Well, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm just the other side of 50. I've lived in Tamworth about 25, yeah, about 25, 30 years now. Um, I grew up in a small village on the east coast um, called St. Joseph. It's tiny, and I had a wonderful, wonderful childhood. All I remember is sunny days and playing (laughs) and horses and going down the yard and just, I just, I think everyone looks back on their childhood as partly idyllic and blots out bad bits anyway, but it did seem a wonderful childhood with wonderful parents and family. Um, I always had the Christian faith. I went to church very little. My parents went to church, and but it was a C of E, and it was quite a high, almost dull C of E, I guess. Be- bells yeah. and smells. Yeah. Right, okay. And I, thought I had a wonderful primary childhood, though, and I think that was really important. Okay. Because I had the stories. I knew the knowledge. I knew it, 
but it wasn't hot. It was never heartfelt. Really. Do, do you work? Yeah. Oh, now, right. Okay. Um, I, so I left my little village at 18, went to uni, and trained as a teacher. And I've been teaching ooh, nearly 25 years. Well, you, taught, you taught my kids. I did. Yeah. 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 I've probably taught children of people in here, <laughs> as long as I've taught their gr grandchildren. Right. No, I've. Um, I love teaching. I've been very blessed. I've taught in about three or four different schools in the Tamworth area. And, you know, despite all the Ofsted and everything else, it is still a great job. The buzz of the classroom, the relationships, yeah. it's wonderful. And you're married? I'm married, um, yeah, 25 years last year. Um, Dave's not yet a Christian. We say not yet because we know that we keep praying and his heart to be softened, and, yeah, he will be. Okay, thank yeah. you. I mentioned earlier on um, the accident. We, we haven't said anything about that yet, and that was uh, a, a life-changing uh, experience for you. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit uh, about what led up to that, some of your interests, and then what led up to the, the accident? It's probably about 18, 19 years ago now, isn't it? It's 19. 19. Yeah, it'll be 20 right. next year. So... Um, I've always been, well, before the accident, I was incredibly active. I just loved, um, my biggest things I lived for, I guess, were riding the horse. And if the biggest thrill, and everyone, if anyone rides here, was, you know, pointing at a big fence, kicking it and going for it. That was the, that was, that was the, you know, I loved my horses. I loved speed. I loved balancing the fence, getting the stride right, the exhilaration of that. I loved running down the canal with my dog and did half marathons and things and got a buzz out of that. And I loved motorbikes as well. Um, it, I think it was the speed. I think it must have, looking back, it must have been the speed, the adrenaline rush. But absolutely, I was frenetic and never, never stood still. I was up, you know, first thing in the morning before I went to, to school. I'd be down the yard, mucking out the horse, watching her walk out to the field, then run the dog back and... Yeah, just keep going. Right. I was really blessed. I am now. Just different. Yeah, absolutely. And what 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 happened? Right. Because you know it was the accident. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, it was a it was a local sh local showground, and it was the end of the day, and I just decided on the wind that I would go and take my mare up and do that class, and. I don't remember it very well, but um, looking back, you pushed on, it was the open and the idea in the class is you have to go as fast as you can and keep clear over the fences. And we came down at the last, uh, at the last fence. We'll never know quite what happened. May missed, we missed the stride and came crashing down and I fell and my spine was snapped here so I'm quite high I'm T5 as I fell and I knew at the time I'd done something very seriously wrong I didn't lose consciousness but when I looked down my legs were over there and I thought they should be there and I knew something was wrong mm. your body goes into shock so I don't you feel the pain to start with but Christopher Reeve if anyone had heard of him he'd had his accident the year before mine so it was very much in the horsey press. So I think in my head, mm. I perhaps had an inkling 
of what I'd done. I didn't realise how big it was, though. I didn't realise that it would mean spending the next nine months in a spinal unit in Oswestry. I didn't realise... I thought it was just the legs don't... The legs don't work, and I thought, well, I can handle that. Get super strong, we'll get back. We'll... But it was so much more than that, yeah. That must have been an incredibly scary moment to be conscious and then seeing your legs splayed in a, a different direction and then fearing what might have happened. Yeah, I don't... Yeah. It all happens so fast Then anyone who's been in any sort of accident or illness, it... Right. The momentum at first just it's out of your control, isn't it? Yeah. I remember vaguely being um, in intensive care and the, well, they just give you the little cotton wool bud to lick from because you're not allowed any liquid and yeah. so on. It was it's the out of control thing that yeah. is probably the scariest because we all like to be in control, don't we? And at that time, you had a view of God and God was sort of there but out there somewhere I guess how did your Christian faith really kick off how did you become a, um, a, a serious practicing, practicing okay, Christian okay try and keep it short um, my, sis, my, little, my little sister she's well, eight years younger than me she's a missionary and she'd gone out to, she'd gone out to Poland and of course when I had this accident from the word go, she was praying. And she was mobilizing people across the continents to pray. And she did tell me this. And I said, well, it's very kind of you, Sarah. Thank you very much. But, you know, and it, it really, um, God, people were speaking to me about God early on. People spoke about someone called Joni Erickson Tarda, who we've met, um, who's a very high tetraplegic and she's absolutely on fire for Christ and I just couldn't and she had a riding accident too but I couldn't I just couldn't feel it I don't think it needs to be heartfelt doesn't it faith so um, oh gosh where did I go right so I finished in Oswald Street and I came home and I lived just down the road at this time and people, you know, I was still told very much that people were praying for me, and that was great, but it wasn't, it wasn't touching. And it was getting towards the Easter time, and I'd always been known the Easter story. And I guess the seeds that people, the prayer that people, prayers that people were making started to really see fruit within me, because I wanted to read the Bible, and I wanted to read the Christian story. And I wanted to understand what all this business was about, that God could send his son to die on a cross, to go through all that pain. And that's, I think that's why I started reading it. And then um, things started to come together. We had a God, um, God incident with you, didn't we, in the manor, in the manor house? We just met, didn't we? Yeah, we that's just... Right. Well, Things don't just happen, do it? It's a God incident. Um, but I was, you know, bribed on the thing that if you go to the manor house, you can have a lovely hot chocolate with cream and a bacon sandwich. yeah, bacon sandwich. Absolutely. So you go, don't you? And then you meet Stephen and Julie. So, which um, so the seat, the, the seats were there, and it was so close then. And from then, it just, just it was like a light. It's like a light being turned on. 
I think that's the strongest way it was. I just, I heard, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it made church. He hadn't. It wasn't that. But it was the sheer humanity of Jesus that touched me, I think. And the loving Father. And the things just came together. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Have you ever said, why God? Why me? And if you have, is it something that you often say? I'm sure I have said, why God? Why me? Remember, it's 19 years on. And the grieving process in anything, whether it's losing a partner or a friend or a mum or whatever, is always worst closest, isn't it? Mm. So those are the times when probably I shouted most, why me? But, no, not, not, not terribly. But I'm, now I guess it's, oh, a couple, couple of things. I... I genuinely, um, as you go as you get further on in faith, I, you don't 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 compare. I've learned so much yes. along the way that no, no, there's no bitterness. After all, <laughs> I was doing what I loved. It was a freak. It was an accident. I've got free will. I was given the chance to ride that horse and do everything that I did, and. You know, God didn't do anything cruel. I made that choice, and no. What what, what you were saying to me earlier is that um, that occasions you said, "Why me?" But never in that all-consuming, destructive way of 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 bitterness. It is totally destructive. If you go going down that route, it's easy to say. You know, remember, I am a long time on from, and although I'll have knockbacks, I might have to go into hospital for a while and everything. It is much easier to say it, yes. now, it is, uh, now, but that destructiveness, when you start to compare, when you start to dwell on me, 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 yes. and that's our world, isn't it? It is a world of me, me, me. Well, I've known you for, had the pleasure of knowing you for, what, 19 years now. I sort of knew you, and we knew each other yeah, of, of sorts knew before that. Me. Yes. And, yeah. Um, um, you know, I, I've witnessed that your faith is central to your life and yeah. it has made a difference. Would you like to say in, in the ways that your faith has made a difference? Um, I couldn't do anything in my life without God. It's that's, it is absolutely that simple. I, I can't imagine going on. I, I just couldn't. God, God gives me so many things. I think the biggest thing he gives me is grace. He doesn't. He hasn't changed the situation. I don't. Um, he could to heal me. I absolute. I know that. You know, there's no doubt. But he chooses not to, and that is honestly absolutely fine now. Um, where was I going? Yeah, grace is the big. Grace is the biggest thing. And having, a cho- and having a choice, we've always got a choice about how we see things and what we do. We can choose to be sucked down into that destructiveness, can't we? Yes. Or we can take that very hard step with the help of our Christian family and our friends, and we can start to pull our way back up and claw our way up and keep praying, keep close, and you will come, you will come through. That's brilliant. 
I'm sure that many of you have heard of um, that famous quote from C.S. Lewis. I've got it here. Um, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What do you think about that? So, whispers in our pleasures. He whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Well, he wouldn't have got hold of me otherwise, did he? Do you think so? No. Well, um, <laughs> that's an interesting one. It would have taken it. It would have been harder. Okay. So it's, um, it is when you, you know, when you are on your back, aren't you? You've said this before. Right. And you're looking up. There's only one way to look. There's when only you're on one your back. way to yes. look, and you just don't realise how many people are praying for you. Yes. And that they're out there. So you're saying that through this, God got your attention. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever yeah. been ang angry with God? I'm sure I've, I've been frustrated. Frustrated, right, okay. But um, I, I, it's, it's, I don't think I blame God. I, we live right. in this world that is a free will. It's a, fr it's a fallen world. And without, but without all the dark, you wouldn't know the love. You wouldn't know the light. Okay. So okay. that's... But I think, for me, it's the little things. For me, it's being able to, when I'm going into a difficult class or something, something that I'm a little bit worried about, it's being able to push into the loo and just take a couple of minutes and say, okay, I know I can't do, I can't, there's not a chance of me doing anything in my own strength, but if we pray together now, we'll be able to do this. I know, I know I'll be able to find, I mean, I'll be able to do it. And I would also really, really encourage everyone, if they're not in a cell, to be in a cell because my cell have been amazing. They love me dearly. They hold me. They're able to hold me to account, as Christian friends can, can't they? When you're getting a little bit self-pitying and you're losing the plot, they can pull you back <laughs> up. They listen. They pray. And yeah. Okay. Last question. You know, someone said to you, you know, the title of this whole series is Where is God When Life Hurts? If someone said to you or asked you that question, Jenny, where is God when life hurts, how would you answer them? Oh, he's always there. It's that picture of the Sistine Chapel of Michelangelo where he's reaching down yeah. and he can't quite get us because we haven't quite made that connection. And... He's always there, but I think when something awful happens to us, however big it is, because remember it can be relatively small but seem very big to you, that we get blinded, don't we? We've got this sort of veil of tears that, we, that gets in the way, and then we've got this dense, suffocating fog of anger and self-pity that, that gets in the way. And that's not, you know, that's not God's fault. But that is, it just happens, we're human. We mustn't beat ourselves up about it, but it does get in the way. You've got to give it time. Absolutely, got to give it time. Stay close to your, yeah, stay close so to So where people. is God when life hurts? He's there. Oh, gosh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Jenny, thank you ever so much. Okay. You are, thank you. That was very, very brave, and uh, thank you so much. That was very inspiring as well, and uh, Jenny is one of those people
who continues to inspire me very much so. Thank you. Why, Lord? You know, just two words, and I find myself uttering those words with surprising regularity. There have been a number of reports this week in the media, and I have uttered those words yet again. Why? Why, Lord? 21-year-old university student Karen Buckley's body was found after an intensive police search following her disappearance. She was murdered. Muslim migrants threw 12 Christians from Ghana and Nigeria overboard as they attempted to cross the Mediterranean from North Africa into Europe. Earlier in the week, a further 400 people were believed to have been drowned when their boat capsized in, um, just off the coast of Libya. And again, it begs the question, doesn't it, of how desperate people must be to leave perhaps North Africa and some of the um, Asian continent. Another story of a five-year-old, uh, rather the mother of a five-year-old boy from Southampton who was charged with murdering her son after setting her car on fire with him sat inside. Then on Wednesday evening, there was a, I think a much needed yet shocking documentary on BBC, um, on BBC, I think it was BBC Two, about the plight of Christians being driven out of the Middle East. And we were told in quite graphic detail that massacres are happening continually while the world watches on impotently. And that's only just mentioning the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And many would ask, how could a loving God allow these things to happen? And it also appears that faith in God offers no insurance against tragedy. That's something we'll come on to in a little bit later this morning. Where is God when life hurts? Well, as Christians, we believe that with the coming of Jesus into the world, that God fully entered into human history, that God, God is no longer out there, occasionally dipping into history to change things, but God came to where we are, as Jenny said to answer that last question. He's there. He's here. He resided in the body of a human being on earth, that he made himself subject to physical laws and to the limitations of the planet. And therefore, the best clue for us to understand how God feels about human pain is to look at the responses of Jesus. Now, I was looking through the scriptures this week and I could find three occasions, there may be others, but three occasions in the New Testament where Jesus spoke directly about the problem of suffering. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, we have Jesus referring to two uh, current events in his day. Two current events which obviously prompted a lot of discussion. And the first was the story of Pilate murdering a group of Galileans who were going to the temple to offer sacrifices. And the second event that was on everyone's lips concerned 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. And interestingly enough that there's no mention of either of these uh, stories elsewhere in the history books. And if it wasn't for Luke's Gospel, we wouldn't know anything at all about these two events. With Pilate murdering those who went to the temple and the Tower of Siloam falling on these people. One was caused by human cruelty. The other was caused by a terrible accident. And the thing I love about this story 
is that Jesus responded to what people around him were talking about. That was in the common discussion. That was what were, people were talking about in his day at that time. In it, he spoke their language. He touched on issues which were culturally relevant. People were talking about these things. And it's really interesting, these five verses, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. He doesn't answer their question of um, why these tragedies occurs. Because they were asking, what caused it? Was God to blame? But rather, he dealt with something else. He chooses to tell them something else through this. And we'll have a look at this now. Some of these verses... Verses 2 and 3. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Is that why they suffered, asked Jesus? Not at all. And then the next two verses, verses 4 and 5. And what about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they, worse sinners than, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. Firstly, Jesus makes it clear that these events did not occur as a result of specific wrongdoing on the people who were killed. And he says that essentially that if a person dies in a tragic accident or if a person miraculously survives a tragic uh, accident, it's not a measure of that person's sinfulness or their righteousness. These people, he says, did nothing at all to deserve their fits. And I think that's a very, very important lesson, certainly for, for some Christians. Because some Christians, they fall into one of two quite extreme opposite camps. First of all, there are those Christians who attribute all suffering to God. And they view suffering as God's punishment for human mistakes and sinfulness. And yes, there are Christians who are just like that around. A few years back, I heard uh, about television evangelist Pat Robinson from the 700 Club say that the 2010 Haiti earthquake which caused terrible devastation didn't it that that was actually at God's judgment for wicked practices in the past and I think that that's an astonishingly stupid remark in a time of immense suffering for the people of Haiti the other error and the extreme opposite error is that there are people who assume that life with God will never include suffering. And again, I've come across Christians who are just like this. Uh, I'm sure that some of you are aware of the, the health and wealth gospel that many of the televangelists uh, embrace. And they teach that as long as a believer is living in line with God's will in their lives, that they as a child of God can claim health, wealth and prosperity. Now I think that that's sanctified nonsense. I really do. You know, I believe in the power of God to heal. In fact, as Dan said, we will be meeting this evening and we will be praying for God to heal people. But God doesn't give us the promise of a, a life free of suffering. God doesn't wrap us up in cotton wool once we become Christians and therefore no more suffering for the rest of our lives. Actually, the opposite happens so often and that is that when someone decides to follow Jesus they actually get a lot more suffering 
And that's what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Hebrews chapter 11, we all know that as the, the great chapter in the Bible on faith. The, the Bible writer compiles a list of God's superheroes of faith down through the centuries. And most of those who are recorded in the first part of the chapter saw amazing deliverances by the hand of God. They saw amazing miracles. But those that he records in the second half of the chapter also were great heroes of faith, but they were the ones who were tortured and chained and stoned and sawn in two. And the message is clear, and the message is clear for all of us, that they were all commended for their faith. God enabled some of them to escape, and God enabled some of them to endure. And those who suffered were in no way inferior to those who escaped. So let's come back to the comments for a few moments about Jesus and about the, the murdered worshippers that he spoke about, and also the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Jesus didn't comment on why those two tragedies occurred. He didn't look back. Rather, he encouraged his, his listeners to look forward. He chose not to focus on the cause, but rather to focus on what their response should be. That's absolutely key in understanding this. He used both those tragedies as, as something to point to some eternal truths. And he said to those around him, unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, what Jesus was saying to them, let's make sure that we are walking in a right relationship with God. Because who knows what can happen in our lives. We could be the next person who is a victim of a falling tower. Or we could be the next person who is the victim of political terrorism. And what I find most interesting about these verses that I quoted, um, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. And to tell you the truth, uh, I've read this passage many times and I only saw it for the very first time just a couple of days ago. That people around Jesus at the time were asking philosophical questions about why suffering? Why did these people die? Whose fault was it? Was God to blame? But Jesus responded not to their philosophical questions and he didn't even go there to try to answer those. Because what Jesus was most concerned with is not why, but where do we go from here? How were they going to respond to what had happened? There's a similar story as well. In John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples came up to him and said that they'd been speaking to a man that they had just met, a man who had been born blind. And the question that they asked Jesus was, this man, was he born blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And that was the way that uh, Jewish people at the time tended to look at some calamity or suffering, that it was always caused, they believed, by some great sin. And Jesus answered, and you can see this for yourself, in John chapter 9, verse 3. He said that neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the power of God might be seen in him. Now those disciples, by asking that question, they were looking backwards. 
They were wanting to find the cause of this man's suffering. And instead of looking backwards, Jesus redirects them to look forwards and shows that suffering, as we've heard from Jenny this morning, can actually be redeemed and it can be transformed. That God can bring about good even in the worst of situations. Some of you might be aware that uh, many Muslims have been converted to Christianity in the Middle East. Are you aware of that? Many of them. There's been a real upsurge in the last year. And the reason for this upsurge in people becoming Christians from the Muslim faith is the atrocities of the Islamic State. They cannot believe in what their faith, supposedly, or people from their faith are doing. And people in Iraq and people in Syria, and they're experiencing now the reality of the one true God. And there are many, many churches mushrooming amongst um, the refugees. There are ten churches and all over the place with those who are converting from the Muslim faith. And behind all of that is this terrible evil of what the Islamic State are doing. And these Muslims have previously been taught to pray by rote to Allah. And they are told that the Quran says that Allah is unknowable. And now they are praying to a, a God whom they call Father, a personal God. This morning we heard Jenny's story. And uh, recently I read a, a story about a lady named Mary Verghese. And Mary was a, a medical resident in a lepre leprosy hospital in India. And one day Mary went on a picnic with a, a young student and he was driving the car. And after following a, a rather dilapidated school bus for a few miles, this student put his foot down on the accelerator and decided to overtake but he didn't allow himself enough time to overtake the school bus and he had a head-on collision with another vehicle. And this uh, car with the student and with Mary inside, the car veered over a bridge and tumbled down a steep embankment. Mary Vergesi was a, a promising young doctor and she lay motionless at the, the bottom of the bank. Her lower limbs were just tangled uselessly. The next few months for her were almost unbearable, and I know that Jenny can understand this. Summer temperatures in India raised to 110 degrees outside. Mary lay in a sweltering hospital room, in traction, wrapped in perspex ja jacket, plastic breasts, faced hours of agonizing therapy. A colleague of hers, Dr. Paul Brand, who is a world-renowned leprosy specialist he came to visit her he could see that her spirits were on a bit of a downward spiral and he said to her Mary I think you need to start thinking about your professional future as a doctor again and he went on to suggest to her that she might bring to her vocation unique qualities such as sympathy and understanding and she pondered his words and reflected upon them for a long, long, long time, doubting whether she could ever recover sufficient use of her limbs to ever function as a doctor again. And gradually she began to work with the leprosy patients. 
And the hospital staff noticed that when Mary was around, the leprosy patients, their self-pity and their hopelessness just seemed to evaporate. And she was known as the wheelchair doctor. And she was the very first doctor in India who was a doctor in a wheelchair. And she was actually more disabled than they were and whose face bore the scars that they bore as leprosy patients. And Mary's recovery took a long, long, long time. Many hours of excruciating therapy. Many major surgery, much major surgery on her spine. She was incontinent for life. She fought constantly against pressure sores. But now she had that glimmer of hope. She began to understand that this disability was not some punishment from God to entrap her in misery for the rest of her life, but rather this could now be transformed. It could be her greatest asset as a doctor. And she was in her wheelchair with a crooked smile and facial scars. And yet she had an immediate rapport with those leprosy patients. Later, Mary worked in New York's Institute of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. And then she headed back to India, and she headed up a new department in Vellore in India. Now, the reason I tell you that story, and I share that with you, is that Mary Vaghisi is an outstanding example, as is Jenny, an outstanding example of a person who got nowhere by asking why. But she turned to the Lord and asked, to what end? She chose not to ask why. Rather, she chose to ask to what end. And she learned to trust God, as Jenny has as well, for God to just weave a new design into her life and probably has achieved far more than she ever might have if her accident had not happened. In my talk last week, I was dealing very much with the philosophical questions. And this week, I suppose I'm focusing far more on the pastoral questions as we attempt to make sense of suffering in our own lives. The challenge, I believe, is not to look backwards, not to ask, why has this happened to me? Why has God allowed this? But to look forwards and um, how we should react, to focus on response rather than cause. There's a photograph there of uh, Mary Vergesi in 1972 being awarded in recognition to her contributions to medicine by the, the President of India. An incredible lady whose attitude was to carry on and to make the very, very best of her life. In the Second World War, Jewish psychiatrist Dr. Viktor Frankl learned through his own imprisonment that not even in a concentration camp can a person's choice of attitude be taken away. He wrote these words. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and spiritual stress. Everything can be taken from man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. In the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort, of the, the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result 
of the camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him mentally and spiritually. Sorry, that was a long quote, but an incredible quote from a man who has suffered extremely in the depths of despair and yet, through his own attitude, to choose to think the right way, which was his choice, he said, that made the difference both mentally and spiritually. You see, people very often get stuck in trying to make sense of personal suffering by looking back, by seeking answers in the past. Why has this thing happened to me in my life? Why is God allowing me to go through suffering and hardship? And Jesus encouraged people not to look back. That was a futile exercise. Not to ask the why, but rather to ask the question, to what end? James says much the same. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. It wasn't only James that said that, but Paul said that too in Romans chapter 5. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they will help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. And it's Peter as well that says much the same. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. So be truly glad. There's a wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honour on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Incredible words. So you have Jesus, you have James, you have Paul, you have Peter, you have Viktor Frankl, you have Mary Vergesi, you have Jenny Atkins. They're all saying the same thing. That you cannot take away our power to choose how we will react. It's about the attitude of heart. As somebody once said, the sun can both harden clay and melt ice. Suffering can do the same. Suffering can come to some people and it can harden their hearts. And to other people, it can actually soften them. It's astonishing, and I, I read about this this week, that during the 1970s, 1,000 survivors of the Holocaust were asked how their experience of the Holocaust had affected their, their beliefs in God. Astonishingly, 50% claimed that the Holocaust had no influence whatsoever on their views about God. A further 11% said that they rejected all belief in God as a direct result of their experience. A smaller number, 5%, actually changed from being atheists into believers because of the Holocaust. After living through such abominations, they had no one else to turn to but God. And the attitude of heart is the most important thing. And no one but ourselves can take away our freedom of choice, our freedom on knowing how to react. And do we react as in faith or unbelief?
looking backwards or looking forwards, misery or joy, despair or hope. Why or to what end? Let's pray together.